You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my good friend, Dr. Stephen Kistler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health. And Dr. Mark Kistler is not here. He's out in the hospital running ragged, doing things. And uh, he, we don't have anything from him because I think we forgot to tell him that we are recording today, which is Tuesday, even though this will be put out on Wednesday. And so we don't have anything from him, but that's okay. Stephen, how are you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm doing all right, Matt. How are you? Doing pretty well. You know, I, it's just, it's August. It's what? August 4th as we're recording this and I feel exhausted. Yeah. What a summer is supposed to be like this time of frolicking and, and I'm like, oh, we're going into fall semester and I'm like, where was the break? I'm tired. I'm going to take a nap all the time. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, I can relate to that feeling so much. Oh, yeah. But no, we're not going to nap. We're going to put another episode out That's right. to talk to you about some fun and exciting things. A uh, few things before we get started. Always love reviews. You've heard it. We could use more. It helps us move up in the ratings. Just got another one recently on July 22nd from Rainy Bird. So number one, great name, Rainy Bird. Love it. She says, five stars. Excellent. This is the best podcast out there on the pandemic. Thank you, Rainy Bird. The three hosts are intelligent and well-spoken. Discussions are based on science and real life experience. I'm a registered nurse. Therefore, what I most especially appreciate is that information is not dumbed down or scripted. There's very little political opinion expressed. It is clear that the topics are well-researched. Not by me, but by Stephen and Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Keep up the great work, gentlemen. Maureen from Philly. Maureen, thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks. That's great. Huge shout out. You know, one person I've always shout out, her name is Diana. If you know uh, Diana, she was one of the first subscribers to Pandemic and she's emailed us a few times. And so I just want to say, Diana, you know who you are. You're one of the very first ones. We've emailed a couple of times. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. She just sent a recent one out let, letting us know that she still listens to it. So awesome. Patreon, love the support. We, know we still need to pay off some stuff. Patreon.com slash Pandemic Podcast. Check it out. As small as $5 a month can help a ton. One-time gifts from PayPal, Venmo, right in the show notes. And then last week, we dropped another episode, or I dropped another episode on Living the Real on my other podcast. Mark gave some awesome insight to what it means for him to live the most real life. He was pretty vulnerable, had a raw week, so I'm glad I kind of snagged him at that particular point in time. Check it out. LivingTheReal.com. Subscribe to the podcast. Good stuff going on. Okay. Let's get in to the good stuff of coronavirus. So last week, Stephen, I was kind of feeling this weight of like, man, we're, we're, we're getting a lot of new cases. Deaths are on the rise. Things are getting nerve wracking for me. Is it just going to keep climbing up and climbing up? And then September and October is this apocalyptic moment, right? So, but now we're seeing that things are dipping. It's, 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 uh, you know, even it was in the sixties that I just woke up this morning to in the fifties. So went from seventies to fifties, a second straight day, ABC, ABC news says, so what do you think is going on? Are we kind of getting out of this, this next big, I know there's, it's not, it's still the first wave apparently, right? We're not like having these, are we kind of getting out of this, this crisis or is it transferring? What are you perceiving at the moment? Oh boy. Yeah. So I think, I think what's happening is complex. So I'm, I'm definitely encouraged by the fact that like case counts are seeming to level and maybe turn back around a little bit. The thing that is giving me pause right now is, is looking at the test positivity, which is actually holding steady in a lot of the places where the cases were first seen to rise. So looking at California, Florida, Texas, I was, I was just looking at Florida's positivity now and 
they've dipped maybe a little bit in the last two days, but but it's basically it sort of rose and then just sort of held steady right around that 18, 17, 18% level. And, and this is based on the Johns Hopkins tracker. And, and you can see that the number of tests that they've done have, have risen and then actually started to decline a little bit. So so part of the, just because some of the increase that we were seeing was partly driven by increased testing, some of the decline we're seeing is also partly driven by uh, backing off of, from testing a little uh, bit, it yeah. seems. So so I think that that's, that's one caveat worth mentioning. Although the fact that the positivity is leveling is a very good sign. And and I think that there's 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 definitely reason to hope that like some of the intervention measures that we've put into place, some of the places that have stopped or reversed the reopening, some of the places that have looked at and particularly done a lot more contact tracing, done a lot of really targeted sorts of things. I mean, we knew that that was going to be what we were going to need as the epidemic moved forward was to move from these large scale sort of hugely societally disruptive things to sort of more targeted approaches to try to stop the spread. And and I think that, that those are those are helping for sure. And so, but that's, that's why I'm sort of taking the the decline in cases that we've seen with, with a bit of a grain of salt, because it's not, it's, it's not totally clear that that actually reflects a true decline right now, even though it is definitely, it is better than going up. <laughs> so. <laughs> totally. so how do you, now this is again, I'm going to ask one complex question and then give you another one, because I know some people are probably looking at the number and it's dropping and just saying, see, there's no point in taking this like seriously and doing all these things. And you're saying, well, you know, I feel there's that part of this drop has been contributed because certain areas and locations have taken it more seriously, right? We've have states putting mask, you know, mask mandatories, right? We have that in Colorado for 30 days and other places have been doing the same thing. And, you know, talking with friends who see these things go down, you know, that we talked last week with Florida that 53 hospitals were over overrun and 140 some were still okay. And it's a complex issue to talk about how this is something to be taken seriously. How, is there any way we can begin to infer or know that, you know, a lot of this decrease is probably because of we we're actually doing things, or we're just like, ah, oh, we'll 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 write about this ten years from now, and we'll figure it all out then. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 the problem, right? Because it's so hard to attribute yeah. uh, any any change to any behavior that we've done in the past, just because the 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 way that the disease spreads can be so complex. There are so many ways that it can spread, so many venues. And and there's so much delay between when you've even gotten infected to when you might begin to show symptoms that you don't even know when, you know, even if you've been infected, you don't know where or when or how, or if anything that you did contributed or didn't contribute to it. So, I mean, this is, these are problems that are going to be studied by epidemiologists for, for years to come, for sure. Yeah. Now, now that said, for sure, there's very solid evidence that the non-pharmaceutical interventions that, that we've been undertaking in aggregate can do a very good job in limiting transmission. Like that's very clear. Yeah. And it's it's no no one of them is is the silver bullet. It's it's not masks, it's not physical distancing, it's not, you know, any one of these things alone is not enough, but it's very clear that in the aggregate these things do absolutely have a substantial effect on on, on slowing down transmission. And unfortunately that's that's about all we know about yeah. SARS-CoV-2 right now. Sure. You know, like I mean that's 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 really painting it. You know, we we know a lot more than that about <laughs> SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> sure, but, yeah. But but that's, you know, in terms of controlling its spread, that's something that we know for sure. And there's not a lot else that we know for sure in terms of limiting its spread. And so that's that's kind of what we're left with. So, yeah. you know, and some places you're going to have to try harder than others because people interact differently. The age structure is different. So no no one prescripted process is going to work in one place the same way it's going to work in another too. And that's yeah. part of this complexity. And that's part of why 
it's so difficult. I mean, these arguments keep arising of like, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And, and why does it look different here than it does in, you know, the place where my friend lives or where, and it's, it's, it's because of all of these complexities and, uh, and, and we're, we're all learning on the fly. You know, I, I don't have the answers either. Yeah, absolutely. And so it gets to this other article. We're kind of jumping down a couple of, a couple of points, but the article was, why aren't we talking more about ventilation? And, you know, I think this has been maybe part of the reason why we're starting to see a decline because we're becoming more aware of where, where are those concentrated areas by which it really does or it is a game changer for us, right? right. So March and April, and we're still doing this at home. I mentioned this last week that we're still wiping down surfaces and we're scrubbing things and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But, we're, you know, I love this article because we're seeing such an emphasis, even in a lot of the prescriptions for when you go back to school and what you should be doing, and especially the grade schoolers, and how often you should scrub down the desks and those kind of things. And their suggestion, the Atlantic here, was like, wait a minute, should we kind of maybe, since this is, you know, something particle slash airborne, right, should we put a greater emphasis in the sequence of, first and foremost, why don't we talk about ventilation and how we can really bring about a greater movement of air inside buildings to keep this similar to an outdoor venue, knowing that we see not so much contamination outside. So have we? is this part of the equation probably as well, just the awareness of like being outdoors more often and not being indoors and those kind of things? Yeah, I think that that's a big part of it. I mean, as as we've moved through the last couple of months, it, it has become more and more clear that it is it is extended close proximity gatherings indoors yeah. that really contribute most to transmission again it's not the only way that it spreads but that that seems to account for for the majority of it so and and what i mean by that is that if you could cut out that route of transmission you'd go a very long way towards preventing epidemics from really taking off in your community um, so absolutely i mean i think that that we've we've always sort of known that ventilation was an important element it be, sure. it seems to be more and more clear that like that's 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 really important and that increasing ventilation to the extent that you're able is is a really valuable thing. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason it hasn't gained as much traction is because it's it's a much harder thing to implement. It's a lot harder to re-engineer a building's HVAC system than it is to <laughs> yeah. spray Clorox on a desk, right? Totally. Or to wash your hands. Yeah. And so I think that in a way we're looking for the the things that we can implement now and we can implement cheaply and that we know how to do and so i think that's partly why a lot of these other things have have sort of gained a lot more prominence in the collective sure. discussion but mm-hmm. that said i mean it, there are things you can do you're open, opening up windows and turning on fans and holding yeah. you know classes outdoors if you can but i know that's really difficult but yeah. it's that kind of creativity you know again remembering that it's like this this uh, a whole bunch of different factors working together and that ventilation is a really important one mm-hmm. And I know that if my middle child went to school at this point in time and had an outdoor class, that'd be the last time I'd ever see my child because he'd be like <laughs> sprinting someplace, oh, yeah. frolicking into some ra- random forest or something like that. Yep. So, okay. So, you know, I'm just curious when you say ventilation, I'm, I, I think in like lowest common denominators, like, ah, I just put a few fans, but I mean, I mean, does that, I mean, is that just circulate inside and you're just like making the little particles go everywhere or is that enough right. to be like, yeah, I'm like, you're just like, it's you're just allowing them to kind of go faster and hit other people. But is, is something as simple as just fans that just blow air inside enough or is like oh we need to probably have some outdoor exposure right yeah yeah you want outdoor exposure for sure you're trying basically reduce the concentration of viral particles in the air having a fan inside depending on how big the space is could help too because it'll 
it'll prevent, you know, the biggest risk is if you're like sitting next to somebody who's actively infectious and having a fan inside can sort of help disperse those viral particles so that, but it's, it's dangerous, right? Because it might protect the people right next to him, but it could spread it a lot further. Give it to my neighbor. I'm like, no, you're so just blow it that way. Exactly. Right. Right. So, so you have to be a little careful with that. So I think the key really is, is ideally getting outdoor air in and indoor air out. That, that totally reminds me of, so I grew up in a town, in a small town in Gretna, Nebraska, and uh, shout out to anybody who might be listening to this in Gretna. That'd be awesome. I doubt it. Small town. But so we had, back in the day, when I was a youngin, there was a huge cow lot just across the street from our, our high school. And so whenever the winds would blow, lunchtime would be really painful because you'd yeah. have the entire inside smelling like cow stuff. So anyway. That just reminded me of this point. It's been going to blow yeah, it the not, right way. Not all outdoor air is equal. I should, I should, <laughs> no, I should no. give the caveat. <laughs> yeah, there. totally. Oh, uh, good old, good old Gretna. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it's grown up since then. Okay. A few other things here. Um, I'm curious. Now you were talking about this indoor ventilation. You know, should I be, I'm curious of whether I should be going to my, my physical because I'm, I, I get it with the dentist. I'm going to postpone that. It's not necessarily unless I have a cavity, that kind of stuff. But my, my annual physical is coming up in September and I'm a little nervous. I'm 42. I kind of want to be screened regularly just to be on the safe side. You know, should I be going and how should I be going? And did you go? Yeah. So I think that this, this is a place where your doctor will be able to help out a ton. And I think you can, by and large, you know, you can probably trust what they're doing and what they're, what they say, you know, it's healthcare facilities are from the very beginning of the epidemic. They knew that they had a high likelihood of being places where transmission should, could occur. And so they've been really on top of, you know, again, just like doubling down on their cleaning and everybody wearing masks and, you know, just making sure that, that, that there's as little possibility for transmission there as possible. So personally speaking, I, I'm, I wouldn't be as concerned about going to a doctor's office right now, just because I know it's on the front of everybody's mind Mm -hmm. as soon as you step through those doors. So that said, I, so I, my time for annual physical came up, I think it was last month at some point. And at that point, my doctor's office was not doing any in-person outpatient visits. So, so I didn't, I didn't go, but I, I did a, I did a telemedicine visit. So I, I got on zoom with, with my doctor and he asked me a lot of the same questions that he does during physical. And so it was a very abbreviated thing. There was no lab work. There was no, you know, a lot of the normal things that happen during the physical, you know, you, you don't have that direct in-person contact that you, that you normally get, but nevertheless, I mean, I made contact with my doctor. He saw that I was doing okay. I was able to ask him any questions that were like burning on my mind. And, and I think that that was really valuable. So I think for anyone who's, who's really anxious and worried about going into the healthcare setting, you know, first talk to your doctor, see what they've got in place there, what sorts of measures they've taken. If that's not enough for you, see if they can do telemedicine because that's better than nothing for sure. Sure. And there's been a huge rise in, in telemedicine over the last few months. A lot of people are really relying on it. So, and I, and I think it's a good option for, for a lot of people's scarios. So yeah. Yeah. My dentist isn't doing cleanings right now. So uh, that also took <laughs> no, the decision no, off no my tele, plate. No telecleanings? No telecleanings. Nope. <laughs> <That'd be awesome. laughs> they just like play a little drill sound in your microphone and give you the chills. For, and you just, yeah, you just does say nothing ow. for your teeth whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Oh uh, man. Okay, good. I, I'll check with my doctor. I even think about that. Maybe doing at least the, the, doing a virtual call. Yeah. You know, another thing I want to chat about is we know, I think it was last week we talked about this, but it's resurfaced in a few of my friend circles. And I, de- dealing with how long immunity lasts once you get it, and then really comparing this to vaccines, because a lot of this, I think, is really old news to you, Stephen, because this is, this is part of your, your life. This is what you do. 
But, you know, I think we live out of assumptions with our doctors that are probably aren't necessarily accurate. You know, for example, when I go get the flu shot, if you get one, you know, I get one in November and I, and I get one in the following November. So my assumption is these are a year and they last a year, a full year. And then I get a new one, I get a booster and I'm good. Right. And so then you start hearing these things in light of that kind of framework about the vaccines and it's, and it's the length of its effectiveness and, you know, with COVID and the, the length of immunity. I just read another article that maybe like at three months, there's nothing, I don't know what it is, the antibodies, whatever, there's nothing left uh, after three months or so in some cases. So two things I want to ask you. First, in light of the immunity, when there's nothing left after three months, what does that mean for us? I mean, we're now exposed. I should no longer see my mother-in-law who's 86 after that three-month mark. And then how does this compare to the length of vaccine effective, effect, effectivity? Yeah. So... Uh... There's, there's a lot of really wonderful immunology tied up in those questions you just asked. So <laughs> there's, right. So the immune system is a, it's a pretty complex place. It's, it's one of the most complex. I mean, I've, frankly, I've always been intimidated by immunology because oh. I, it's like, it's like central to my field. Absolutely. But like every time I try to like dive into it and really like there, it, there comes a time probably every like six months or so where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to learn immunology right now. And I, and I grab like a textbook. I look at Wikipedia <laughs> pages and I'm like, I'm going to remember what the difference is between a T cell and a B cell and a, and all these, you know, like yeah. which one is where and how different. The, and, and it just like every time I like really dive into it with the best of you know, best of intentions. And it, it just, it just makes my head swim. So uh, that, that said, you know, this is, this is probably something where we should talk to Mark because he's, he's yeah. able to just like dive through this in such uh-huh. uh, with such clarity, but, but so Speaking from giving, giving all those caveats. So one of the, so one of the studies that really caused a big stir, um, about the, the declining immunity looks like they were just measuring sort of one aspect of that very complex system. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the B cell antibodies that they were, they were measuring basically how much is circulating in, in your bloodstream so that if you were to be re-challenged with virus again, if you, if somebody were to infect you again, would your body sort of immediately be able to fight it off again? But there are also other pieces of the immune system. So the T cells are sort of the things that remember what you've been exposed to before, I think. And so yeah. I don't know. <laughs> right. But, right. So, but there's a part of your immune system that does that, right? And yeah. that's, uh, that that's usually circulates in much, 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 much lower concentrations. But when you get exposed to something, it locks in. It says, we've seen this before. It knows exactly how to call in the reinforcement. And then it, it mounts an immune response and you're able to fight off the infection. Mm. And to my knowledge, that part of the immune system just just wasn't measured in this study and that's one of the crucial parts of the immune system of course and that that might be one of the things that that gives us longer term immunity given vaccination so so i think there's still reason to hope that both natural infection and vaccination could lead to longer term immunity than 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 some of these initial studies have suggested so there's, I mean, and you asked an interesting question about the relationship between flu and coronavirus. Is, is coronavirus immunity going to last for a year? And there's an interesting distinction there too, because immunity to coronaviruses and immunity to flu work very differently. So the reason our, the reason we need a flu shot every year is because flu mutates. It, it changes so much yeah. from year to year that if we were, if if the same exact flu strain was circulating next year as circulated this year. And you had gotten the vaccine or you'd, and the vaccine was effective and, and, or you had been infected with it the year before, you'd probably be fine. You wouldn't get infected again. Okay. But flu evolves, like flu is like the case study for viruses that evolve. Like it, I mean, flu and HIV are like the things that are just like mutate like mad. Coronaviruses are a lot more stable. And so it's actually a factor of our immune system in the case of coronaviruses, where we, our immune system just, coronaviruses kind of just don't, 
trigger as strong of that type of immune response. And so with all the coronaviruses that we know, our immunity does seem to wane over time. Okay. So that's totally expected with this one too. So that's why we might need boosters of a vaccine if one comes available. And it's still a big open question as to how long that immunity will last. So yeah. stay tuned. But, but as far as you know, the, the cutting edge of the field yeah. still does not know. So. <laughs> Great. Well, you know, I put it in layman's terms. I, I, when you were talking, Stephen, I thought the comparison of either like short-term and long-term memory, right? Uh, when it comes to like whatever, the B cell, T cell, those kind of things. One's kind of the immediate response, one's a long-term memory. Or I know there's a lot of times in my life, this is the techie, right? I love keyboard shortcuts. I, I'm obsessed oh, yeah. with them, right? But, you know, somebody will ask me, hey, what's a keyboard shortcut for uh, X, Y, and Z? I'm like, I have no clue. But mm-hmm. if I'm in front of my computer, I just can do it. Like if, yeah. if it's up there. But I I have to reference a manual if you actually want me to tell you what the th- same thing is. So maybe that's kind of a similar reality of like, look, yep. I can't tell you, but put me in front of a computer and trigger it for me. And I, and I got it down. That's right. right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, there, here's hope. Here's hope that the, the, the immunity lasts long and the vaccine lasts longer as well. That's right. Okay. So we talked about uh, the vaccine. We talked about immunity. We talked about ventilation. So now I want to hit this Yale epidemiologist. And I think you have a lot to say about this for qualifications and all this. I saw this a few days ago. This is like, this is not, it's maddening to me, Stephen. It's constantly coming up. And I don't know why. I'm just like, I, I, it, it's really just become a political reality. And I wish we could stay in the scientific realm of understanding what works and what doesn't. But this Yale epidemiologist, so when you hear Yale and you hear, hear epidemiologist, you want to listen, right? And so it says, in this person, hydroxychloroquine could save up to 100,000 lives if used for coronavirus. So I get this. I'm like, okay, we've been talking, you and I and Mark, about how study after study seems to lend itself that it's really not that useful. And here we have an Ivy League epidemiologist saying we're wrong or they're wrong. Can you help filter out what's going on with this? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of really interesting things in play here. And I think the yeah, the the politicization of of different aspects of the pandemic, including particularly the, the drug hydroxychloroquine, is is really remarkable because as with all of the treatments that we have available, we're still conducting research on them. And so it's there's it seems like a treatment is a very simple, simple thing, right? You give somebody a treatment and they either get better or they get prevented from getting the illness. But of course, there are so many issues in terms of side effects, in terms of at what stage you give the treatment, at what dose you give the treatment, whether it's whether it's preventative, whether it treats, you know, the downstream effects. And so I mean, there, there are still active studies with hydroxychloroquine going on. And as of yet, I, I don't know of any convincing evidence that the benefits of hydroxychloroquine outweigh the risks. Now, that's, that's the key there. So, so one of the things that this, well, so l- let me take a step back. So there's, there's an element talking about sort of hydroxychloroquine and its effectiveness and that sort of thing. So, so I want to just sort of flag that. Now, you mentioned, you know, we, we hear about a Yale epidemiologist and we really want to listen, right? So, and I think that that's, that's worth doing. And it's also worth sort of digging into these people's qualifications. And it turns out this is an epidemiologist of cancer who's published extensively on the risk factors contributing to cancer, but as far as I can tell, is not a specialist in infectious disease whatsoever. And we've seen that with various epidemiologists at a lot of very high-level institutions, including Harvard, where various they've, they've been asked for comment because they're epidemiologists, but they might be an epidemiologist in nutrition or an epidemiologist in cancer. And that doesn't mean that they don't have anything useful to say. You know, like uh, as epidemiologists, there's a lot that we share for sure. Sure. But there's also a lot of particular expertise that comes from studying a specific problem in the way that infectious disease epidemiologists do. And and I like I so yeah, I 
I would not be able to tell you much about a cancer treatment, about how it works, mm. about whether it would be effective. Like I would not like yeah. I just couldn't comment. And I would I would I would ask I would ask Mark, I would ask Allie, my girlfriend, because she's she she like does basic research on mm. cancer drugs. Okay. And I I know that they do stuff to disrupt tumors and that, you know, like <laughs> yeah, that's about it. You know, and that's, that's and so and so I, I can't really comment on that. And so but here we have someone who's who maybe has done a lot of background research, but but to me it seems like there, this is again sort of a selective reading of anecdotal evidence, isn't necessarily taking account of the fact that, you know, maybe maybe you could save or prevent that many deaths from giving hydroxychloroquine, but you could cause many more premature deaths from from heart failure because we know that's one side effect of hydroxychloroquine as well. Sure. We have to balance all of these things together. And th- frankly, the again, the 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 evidence just isn't in. And the and the evidence that is in suggests that there's no added benefit mm-hmm. as far as we can tell. So so you know it's it continues to be this sort of odd political debate. And it's like, you know, I, I, I want hydroxychloroquine to work, you know, <laughs> yeah. man, like yeah. I, yeah. I would love, I want everything to work. I want everything we've got. I just want this thing to be over. You sure. know, I want it to be done so bad. <laughs> and, yeah. but, but, it, it, but the, the problem is that if, you know, we can undermine so much trust in science yeah. and in medicine by, by touting things that are either unproven or frankly ineffective or actually harmful. Uh-huh. And, and so we have to be really careful about this. And so, and so I think that that's part of my frustration is that like, it's, it's not that I don't want it to work, but I, Part of the reason I'm so, I'm I'm holding back so much is because I want it to work so bad, yeah. but but I don't want to be duped, you know. Yeah. Like it's yeah, it's exactly. so we need to we need to know and and we need to make sure that the that the that the treatment isn't worse than the than the illness that it's meant to prevent. Yeah. No. I yeah. I'm just like sometimes Stephen. I just wonder. I mentioned this last week. Am, am I the conspiracy theorist or? Because I mean, it's like everything. Everything that comes my way. I have so many friends who are touting things that are different than what we talk about on the podcast. And I and I and almost seeing this fight for hydroxychloroquine to actually work. And you're right. It's like I I like I want it to work, but my wanting it doesn't actually make it work. And that's a huge problem. And I'm just so utterly confused and like who who would want to keep a cure back, right? I mean, what would be the purpose? Now, I heard some people just as of today mentioned that, like, they think that after the elections that this 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 coronavirus will just be over all of a sudden, right? Because mm-hmm. it's all moving to move the elections towards one way, and the very next day, it'll just poof, disappear. And I have a pretty strong feeling that they're going to be awoken to a really bad uh, reality at this point in time. So maybe that's the reason why. But it's just, it's, it's maddening to see this political situation come in, which is already complicated <laughs> with trying to find the cure and then having people take sides on medicine for a reason that we don't, I don't fully understand. So I hope that helps. It helps me uh, to understand this better. And it makes me want to be much more precise in who I ask the answers to when it comes to this particular issue. And I encourage you guys to do the same. It's not easy. You know, I, I'm thankful that I have an epidemiologist who's actually an infectious diseases, who's a friend of mine, but I'm sure not every single person has one of those friends in a one degree uh, separation. So this is why I need to give this podcast to other people. We're going to end on this. So I want to go back. School's starting up just in two weeks. CU, University of Colorado Boulder, is going to be opening up. And it's going to be, uh, I'm assuming, kind of a, a grand experiment. I, I feel so bad for the universities just hearing what's going on on the inside and how they're trying to deal with all these complexities and how to keep things. Uh, you know, I was hearing that even RAs 
those who are like, that are like literally doing all their one-on-ones virtually, like all their encounters with their dorms are going to be virtual just through Zoom. I'm like, wow, this is a whole other world. So, I mean, good news is they're taken incredibly seriously, right? They're doing everything they can to keep distance. But in light of that, we hear Fauci, we mentioned this last week, you know, he kind of declaring that he believes that any kid over nine years of age transmits coronavirus just as well as adults. Uh, you mentioned something like this last week, uh, and I saw another article kind of speculating like, you know, why? Why might this be the case from zero to, to nine? And I'll kind of throw it back to you. And, and you know, you, you've been looking at us on epidemiological, looking at other countries uh, of, of why that might be the case of zero to nine or, or, or have somehow maybe not transmitting as, as, as intensely. So as, as far as why, we, yeah. we still don't even begin to know. My, my leading <laughs> hypothesis is that they're closer to the ground. <laughs> That's um, mine. Yeah, you know, right. good job. <laughs> it's just, That's my layman. Uh, they're close uh, to the yeah. ground. They're smaller. Right, right, exactly. So, but no, so, I mean, yeah. it's it's not totally clear why why that's the case, but it does seem that from, uh, and, and this this is data coming from places that, that have opened schools in different countries, sort of a comparative epidemiological analysis. And, and as far as we can tell, it does seem like young kids still can absolutely transmit COVID, but don't seem to do it at quite the same rate as older kids do. Okay. Uh, now, now, part of the reason the cutoff is at age 10 is just because that's a convenient cutoff that people <laughs> sure. often use when they're sticking age groups into different bins. And yeah. so, so, so we're not really sure. I mean, it's certainly it's a continuum too, right? There's some kind of spectrum. There's not any clear like cutoff point. And so, so, so that's all worth bearing in mind too. But it does seem like that younger kids, uh, the the bulk of the evidence, which admittedly is not a ton, but the, the bulk of the evidence that is available does seem to suggest that, that really young kids just don't transmit COVID as, as, much, as much as older kids do. But I, I think the important thing is that even as young as 10 or a little bit older, you, you absolutely can. And you absolutely can to the, the same extent as adults do. And I think that's the real takeaway is that uh, as, as we think about bringing schools back, we, we really need to... You know, that's those are the age groups that we're really going to have to think about. How are we going to keep those students and those kids safe? And that means both preventing transmission in the school, but that also means making sure that uh, transmission in the community is as low as possible. We need to do our job yeah. as an entire community to reduce cases so that the kids aren't bringing infection to school in the first place because they got it at home or wherever else. And that's really where we need to be focusing as much as we can, because schools, I mean, schools are are, are incredibly important, I would say, essential services to some extent, right? And, you know, ed- education is, is hugely important. And so we ought to be putting that priority incredibly high. And if there are other things that are vying for, you know, that, that we're trying to decide between, you know, if there's something that's going to make educating children, like, like, like let's, let's think about it. If it's going to make educating children and the people who educate them a more dangerous prospect, like we really need to do what we can to, to help with that. And I think that that's, I think that's pretty clear. And, you know, how we do that, there's, there's all sorts of room for argument and debate and these sorts of things. But I think that that's, that's really important. And that's not, it, it goes beyond just sending the kids to school with masks. It, yeah. the, it, the responsibility lies on all of us to make sure that they're living in a safe community. Like paper tests. Yes, like good. <laughs> you know. oh, oh my gosh. Is yeah. there any Let's, update on that or no? Since uh, no, no. So okay. there's there's been a little bit of, I think there was a, some kind of news release or something by somebody at the FDA that they were starting to consider some kind of adjustment to the to the levels of sensitivity or something partly in response to some of this. So 
boy but we're we're, we're pushing we're, we're trying as hard as we can to, oh, to see if we can make some moves in this way so i hope it doesn't come as late as it becomes a stocking stuffer for me i like it before then i know i know, I know. <laughs> boy me too <laughs> oh man well you know one quick question before we end you yeah. mentioned about the transmission of young kids now i heard this is this correct or not correct when it talks about the transmission of zero to nine about not being that effective it's not quite as at the rate as someone said it's only it's only within those that population of kids but they could they could transmit it to other people who are adults easily or is it just in general the transmission it seems to be in general i think i think uh, but that's that's a great question though that's a, and that's a really good way of thinking about it right because that takes into account how infectious they are and how susceptible to infection are they uh-huh. and those are the two key components of, yeah. of spreading and and I, I actually don't think we have enough data for sure to untangle that okay i do think that it seems like the secondary attack rate so the number of people a young kid infects is lower across age groups as far as we can tell so it okay. seems like they're less infectious i think but that's that like uh, whoever asked you that question, absolutely kudos for like thinking about that the way an epidemiologist ought to. So yeah, well, that's, that's, those that's, are the sorts of questions we ought that's, to have. So. That's my wife. She's the, all right. She's, <laughs> <laughs> was, yeah. She she should be on this thing. She knows the questions to ask all the time. Yeah. So great. Well, this is awesome, Stephen. Uh, great to have you on again. Hopefully, we have no idea until we end this whether it's streamed live on our uh, private Facebook group. Uh, we're gonna get this nailed sometime soon. I'll figure it out. We tried a new service, but yep, yeah, by simple donation we can put you in the private Facebook group and get to go live with us. And once we get figured out, you can ask questions as well. But anyway, thank you guys for listening to this week's episode of Pandemic. If you can, leave a review. We love it. If you want to get a hold of me or have any comments about the podcast or want to tell us what's going on in your side of the world or the country or state, Matt at livingthereal.com. Go to livingthereal.com to check out uh, my conversation with Mark. And then two weeks prior to that, my conversation with Stephen. They were really, really good. Subscribe to that podcast. And I think that is it. I will see you all next week. Take care. Bye-bye.